I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Now, we, we started our last episode talking about how, you know, there are a lot of anniversaries and, and observances in June. Yeah, there are. But there's a big one coming up in July, and, and not just for uh, our show or us personally, but for the entire world, the entire human race. The 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. Ooh. Which we're not going to talk about. What? Because I'm not here to just settle. No, I'm looking beyond. I'm, I'm going further and, 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 and on to bigger and better things. So we're going to talk about Mars exploration. Oh, boy. Yeah. So people have always known that Mars was there. <laughs> Like, it, yeah. it's hard to, to track down a specific point of when we started looking at Mars, because people have always been looking at Mars. It's, it's yeah. right there in the sky. Yeah. You, you can't miss it. But it, it's played an important role in our scientific understanding of uh, uh, the solar system and the greater universe and our place within it. Yeah. Mars's retrograde motion uh, inspired uh, Copernicus's heliocentric model of the solar system. So good job. Good job there, buddy. Uh, Tycho Brahe uh, measured the position of Mars very, very precisely, and Johann Kepler used those measurements to derive the laws of planetary motion. Okay, okay. Galileo started looking at planets with telescopes in the 1600s, and uh, further generations improved on his uh, uh, designs throughout that century to describe varying patches of color, including ice caps. We've known that Mars has ice caps for f over 400 years. That's a really long time. It's a long time. I didn't realize it was that long. Uh, another astronomer, Giovanni Domenico Cassini, used observations of Mars to calculate the size of its orbit, then extrapolate from that to the size of the entire uh, solar system. Okay. Telescopes got even better in the 1800s, leading to the mapping of large surface features, uh, the measurement of how long a day on Mars is, uh, and the discovery of Mars's moons, Phobos and Deimos, all in 1877. Moons uh, are good. Moons are good. I like moons. It's good to have them. I like our moon. Yeah? Yeah. We should go back. I've never been, personally. I mean, not <laughs> us, but like, <laughs> us. Oh, okay. The, the greater us, the grander us. Yes. Let's put some people on the moon. One of those 1877 observers was Giovanni Schiaparelli. Uh, he made a detailed surface map and labeled these long, straight features he called canali. Because he was Italian. So like a canal or like a cannoli? Uh, neither. <laughs> actually, neither. But you are not alone. Because when it was translated into English, lots of people just called them canals. Uh, I like the idea that he was just talking about a cannoli the whole time. <laughs> and like typo. Yes, Oops. he's very, very Italian. <laughs> But to see a map of the surface of Mars, and to see that there are things labeled canals, you know who builds canals? Uh, uh, people. Like, intelligent, uh, people-like civilizations. It also, like, Mother Nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Build, like... But not these, like, straight-as-an-arrow ones that he was drawing in his maps. Well, you know, interpretation. <laughs> 
But this set off the first wave of interest in the possibility of life on Mars. Now, those canali don't exist. They aren't real. They don't reflect any actual surface features. Instead, they were an optical illusion from his instruments. Ah. Uh, this was even argued at the time, but definitively proved uh, later on in 1909. Yeah. But by that time, the idea of Martians, uh, little green men and whatnot, uh, the, the grand uh, civilizations of Barsoom, you know, <laughs> it, it was in the public consciousness. It had taken hold. Yes. It was Barsoomians. Barsupials. Barsupials? <laughs> you watched John Carter. You know about Barsoom. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that movie. Um, Mostly. <laughs> the second half is great. Yeah, I enjoyed it much more than other people. Let's put it at that. In the early 1900s, that's when we invented spectroscopy, you know, shining uh, the light uh, through telescopes at uh, a prism, basically, to see what kind of elements are going on up there. Mm -hmm. Which revealed even more about Mars, like its surface temperature, uh, and the low oxygen content of its very thin atmosphere. Yeah. But who cares what it looks like? What's the point of just looking at it? We gotta go. I mean, looking at it's cool, but sure, like, we but touch like, it. But we can send a robot. Oh, robot can poke it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about the space race today as if it has a definite start and end, you know, kicks off when somebody launches a satellite into orbit and it ends when somebody walks on the moon like khrushchev and and uh, president kennedy just like wrote that down somewhere and shook hands and that's it but no no that's not it at no, all not it. everybody was setting their own goals and seeing what was possible with their rockets and guidance systems trying to just do cool stuff there's there's only an end point in hindsight. Yeah. And Mars is just as good a target as any. Who knows what you might find out there? It's way farther than the moon, which is pretty cool. <laughs> which I guess is just me repeating myself from like six minutes ago. It's but really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. It's really cool. So in the 1960s, there were 13 launches intended for Mars more than any other decade to date. Okay. And launching a Mars probe is incredibly difficult. Like, just what you need to do is you need to get up into space and reach orbit, which history will show is incredibly difficult on its own. Yes. Uh, especially in the 1960s. Yes. Then you have to exit your parking Earth orbit, aim to intercept Mars as it is moving in a different orbit so far away at, a, at, at, its, at its own speed. Uh, not crash at any point, not lose radio contact at any point, or run out of battery. Uh, and if you're going to have a lander of any kind, well, let's add a few thousand more problems on top. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you land in such a thin atmosphere that isn't, like, providing a break to your lander? Like, there's no air resistance. Uh, yeah. Even parachutes don't work that good in Mars, because there's not that much air for it to grab. Yeah. So, like so, so many things when you talk about space exploration, the USSR launched first. That tends to happen. 
They started in October 1960. This is just a few months after the U.S. sent the first probe to the sun, and a few months before the U.S. launched launched our first chimp into orbit. Uh, also six months before Yuri Gagarin's landmark flight. Mm-hmm. Early days in the history of space exploration. Yes. It failed. It usually happens with the first. Yeah, yeah. Now, th- this program was the Mars 1M program, called Marsnik in the American press. Yeah. Because we love a portmanteau, I suppose. <laughs> it was a pair of probes that were meant to perform Martian flybys. Uh, they were identical, launching four days apart, and both failed to reach orbit because of a malfunction in the their lift rocket's third stage. Oh, not get very far at all. It wasn't a particularly good rocket. Did not last long before it got replaced, and the the Mars 1M probes were some of its casualties. Yeah. Two years later, they tried another pair of launches, Mars 2MV-4 number one and 2MV-4 number two. Please tell me they had nicknames. To the American services watching Russian launches, they were called Sputnik 22 and Sputnik 23. <laughs> That's not much better. Now, <laughs> gotta remember which number's what. Not to, to give a spoiler for how these wound up, but it was Soviet policy to not give an official name to a project unless it achieved Earth orbit. Oh. Anything that didn't get to that part just had, like, a, a working code for, you know, the funding. No real name to go out in, into the press and the public. Yeah. So, number one a.k.a. Sputnik 22, launched on the ninth day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh. It had its own rocket malfunction, and the debris field that was left behind was initially identified as incoming nuclear warheads. Oh, boy. So just big shout-out to uh, the early warning people who double-checked. Yeah. And and avoided global nuclear war. Yeah, that's a, that's a shitty day to be working. Or it's a good day to bring your A-game. <laughs> I guess. Now, Mars 2MV-4 number two is also known as Mars 1. Oh. It launched eight days later on November 1st, 1962, and was the first probe to make it to Mars probably. (laughs) Probably. It, It made it. We just don't know if it made it. After launch, it was all smooth sailing. Soviet scientists communicated with Mars One by radio every few days, analyzed the data it collected while on its interplanetary cruise, like measuring the density of of micrometeorites it passed through and magnetic fields and radiation zones in that Earth-to-Mars band. Uh, It detected the solar wind. Uh, It was not the first probe to measure uh, the solar wind. That was Luna One, in 1959. Mm-hmm. Almost five months into the mission, on this flight, contact with Mars One stopped, probably due to an antenna error. Oh. Mathematical models predict it did uh, approach Mars at about 120,000 miles from the Martian surface, which, for reference, is 50 times farther out than the Mars Odyssey orbiter's current orbit. Oh. It would have made that pass on June 19th. Uh, NASA's so very recently, it's the anniversary. Yeah, congratulations. NASA's first attempts at Mars are the Mariner 3 and Mariner 4 probes, 
uh, which were also identical. Uh, if you're wondering where one and two went, they went to Venus. Ah. The Mariner program was a series of ten probes. Some went to Venus, some went to Mars, uh, one went to Mercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mariner 3 launched on the 5th of November, 1964, two days after the election of Lyndon Baines Johnson to the presidency, and was terminated eight hours later. Oh. Uh, it had failed to jettison its payload shroud, like the... So if, if you look at, you know, all those old-timey rocket launches, yeah. it's just a nice smooth rocket all the way up, but the top bit, the nose cone, like, breaks away, and then there's the the beautiful foil-wrapped science package yeah. that actually flies. That thing that breaks away is the payload shroud. Oh, okay. It didn't break away this time. Ah. Uh, so that prevented the solar panels from extending out, which means that nothing was charging the batteries, so they died. Also, with all that extra weight, even if it had power, it couldn't possibly get the speed it needed to get out for its proper rendezvous. Yeah. Mariner 4 launched a little later in the uh, month of November 1964 and became the first probe to successfully fly by the planet Mars and return science data. Ooh, science data. The best kind of data, really. Yeah. It had this big array of probes and detectors and telescopes and a TV camera, all in a unit that, in, in its core, you know, not counting the big antenna or the solar panels, about four feet wide. Wow. Okay. It, it's a dense buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So after a 228-day flight on the 14th of July, Mariner 4 began its flyby, getting within 10,000 kilometers at its closest approach. In addition to all of its other measurements, uh, Mariner 4 took 21 photographs and recorded them onto digital tape on its way around the moon. Ah. So once its flyby ended, it started transmitting all those photos back to Earth. Cool. Uh, Each photo took eight and a half hours to transmit. (laughs) That's why it recorded them to to tape. Yeah. Because it it didn't have the bandwidth. Yeah. (laughs) Need to back this up. The tape recorder it had was a spare, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And Mariner 3 wasn't there to pick up the slack, so NASA wasn't taking any chances and was sure to double-check the first the first uh, transmissions to come in by hand. Ah. So while the computer is crunching the, like, color data and pixel-by-pixel pixel exposure... They took those raw, the raw pixel by pixel uh, measurements and compared them to color swatches and essentially produced the first picture back from Mars as a paint by number. <laughs> I love it. And then the computer finished its work and like, yeah, yeah, okay, there it is. That, that matches up. It's working properly. We'll let the other 20 go the, the regular way <laughs> instead of Arts and Crafts Night at NASA. I, I want to be a part of Arts and Crafts Night at NASA. Is that your favorite uh, scene in Apollo 13? When they make the, the thing that turns the square filter into the round filter? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. So Mariner 4's pictures showed a very cratered surface. Uh, what we now know is that Mars isn't that cratery. It just had a weird bit of luck. Uh, the part of Mars it flew by. Yeah. So did future Mariner uh, uh, flybys and, and even the early orbiters. Yeah. Like, they just kept getting the cratery bits, even though 
with our current understanding of like full 360 degree, every square kilometer of Mars has been photographed. We know that craters aren't that big a deal. Yeah. (laughs) But it also gave us our first measurements of atmospheric pressure, radiation, the magnetic field of Mars, and it failed to find any surface water or any recognizable signs of life. The Burroughs estate was just left in tears, I guess. Uh, It continued to transmit its data until October of 1965, then re-established connection again in 1967. Thanks to the aliens. Thanks to the aliens. They helped. Uh, NASA was able to to download some some data about a micrometeor shower that it passed through. It is now a derelict orbiting the sun. All of these transmissions of over the course of this lifetime totaled around 634 kilobytes. Mm-hmm. That's 18% the size of your average song in MP3. <laughs> That's a good comparison. You got storage problems, you got bandwidth problems, at, at least from a 2019 eye, it was 1964 <sighs> after all. I guess that puts into perspective my lack of storage on my phone. Yeah, you could send your phone to Mars and it would be way, way better than anything they had <laughs> for decades. Mariner 6 and 7, another bit of uh, another pair of twin probes followed in the summer of 69. Oh yeah, summer com- 69. Combined, they photographed 20% of the Martian surface and learned uh, that the atmosphere is over 90% carbon dioxide what atmosphere there is, at Mm -hmm. least. Uh, They were deactivated in 1970 and are also still orbiting the sun. Now, detailed, beautiful pictures of of the surface of Mars are pretty cool. I think we can all agree. Yes. Getting this look at an alien world that has fascinated humanity for so long. You know, Earth's closest relative. Yeah. At least once we found out about the uh, atmosphere and surface conditions of Venus. I guess Mars is our closest relative. Yeah. You'd think that would be pretty cool. Like, big headline, shout it from the rooftops news. Of course. They were distracted. Yeah, like I said, uh, the the summer of 1969 was also the moon landing, which is a bit more exciting, a bit more inspiring. It it crowded out the page space in the the papers. Uh, Meanwhile, the USSR's Mars 2M program, following the, the 1M program, uh, number 522 mission failed when its rocket crashed to Earth 41 seconds after launch. Aww. Covering the launch area in toxic liquid fuel. Oh! Trapping the scientists inside their, their launch stations until the rain washed it away several days later. Oh. This led to the uh, Soviet Space Agency's uh, renewed interest in researching more stable, solid fuel rockets. Yeah. No, none how of long, this liquid fuel. How long did they have to wait? Like, when did it rain? A couple days. A couple days. Did they have snacks? I hope they had snacks. Did it get diluted enough that it didn't become a problem? It's a great story to tell your friends. Like, I was on this work trip, and you would not believe. Now, the 1970s saw almost as many launches as the 60s, and with far, far more successes. You'll learn from your mistakes. Exactly. For instance, Mariner 9 became the first craft to orbit Mars. In fact, the first craft to orbit any planet besides the Earth. And it launched on May 30th, 1971. It arrived during this giant dust storm. 
and was reprogrammed on the fly while it was, you know, orbiting to delay its photography program until the dust died down and you could see oh, the surface. Yeah. It eventually documented 85% of the surface with 7,329 images taken. That's a lot of images. Mm-hmm. It discovered the Valles Marineris, which is this uh, 25,000-mile-long canyon system uh, that at some points gets up to seven kilometers deep. And the reason it's called the Valeris Marineris is it was named for Mariner 9. Ah, uh, not like someone just loved marinara. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just like the cannolis. Yeah. Mars is perhaps the most Italian of the planets, even if they're all named for Roman gods. <laughs> Mariner 9 was deactivated in 1972, but is still orbiting Mars. It is expected to crash to the surface sometime in 2022. That brings us to the USSR's first Martian success, Mars 2 and Mars 3 in 1971, which are, if you want to keep track, the 10th and 11th Soviet Mars missions. Okay. Still numbered 2 and 3 because of their policy. Now, you might be wondering why these come so regularly. There's no year that has only one launch, and there are a bunch of years that have none. Well, you gotta keep rebuilding your rockets since they keep exploding. (laughs) And you want to build a few at a time in case one explodes. It's more because of the launch window. That too. Uh, The Earth and Mars are sometimes pretty close, and sometimes very far apart on opposite sides of the sun. When they're close... There's one-seventh the distance between them, on average, than when they are far. Ah. So if you think about distance, distance means time, distance means fuel, distance means uh, uh, a longer delay in radio transmissions back and forth. Yeah. You have much, much better odds at getting it right if you launch in the near window. Yeah. So that 1971 window saw five attempted Mars missions, all in May. It was, a lot. it was the closest approach that the two planets would have since before anyone launched anything into space, since, since pre-Sputnik days. Yeah. So Mars 2 launched on May 19th, 11 days before Mariner 9, but entered Martian orbit on November 27th, 13 days after Mariner 9. That's a space race, if you ask yeah. me. <laughs> Unlike Mariner 9, Mars 2 and Mars 3 were unable to be reprogrammed on the fly like that. Uh, They took their 60 combined pictures of the big dust storm. Oh. Which is valuable. You learn learn different things. Learn about dust. You learn about the weather patterns. Yeah. Uh, But these missions weren't just orbiters. They had landers. Oh. Ah. Their landers were these domes that would pop open to reveal a a suite of cameras and instruments, and a rover. Ooh! Now, instead of wheels, these Mars rovers uh, moved on skis. Oh, cute! They they had a ski on the left, a ski on the right, and it would just sort of shuffle one step at a time. Imagine like a wind-up robot toy. Yeah. How it just sort of would waggle back and forth as it tries to get, like, traction. Yes. That's how these moved. I love it. So not very practical, but so cute. They had little bumpers on the front for, like, and if it hit the bumper, it would have an automatic reverse signal, so it didn't have to wait for however long it would take for, you know, a signal to be radioed, 
back to Soviet scientists to then like make a plan and transmit it back. No, it, it just backs up. And and then waits for instructions. I hope that it had the little like emergency backup noise that like vans and stuff are required to have. It's <laughs> who would hear it? There's it's the only thing on Mars. They all thought there were aliens. Maybe <laughs> like just in case. They didn't have much range. These rovers. They were not range rovers. I guess. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why are you sorry? That was funny. Uh, because they were attached by a 15-meter umbilical wire. Oh. Rather than being autonomous. They, they didn't have their own uh, radio equipment, their own battery. They they were plugged in. So, I mean, that, that solves some problems, I guess. So they were plugged into, like, the home base. They, they were... The rover was plugged into the lander. Okay. I was thinking, like... Rovers were just plugged into each other, and it would be like, "I want to go this way." No, I want to go this <laughs> way. And there's, yeah. They they were not feuding siblings. No, it's much less interesting that way. So the the Mars two lander separated from the orbiter on November twenty seventh. Its parachute failed to deploy, and its wreckage is the first man made object to reach Mars. <laughs> The Mars 3 lander separated on December 2nd and landed successfully. It transmitted from the surface of Mars for 20 seconds before going silent forever, likely because of that dust storm that was going on right where it landed. Now, those 20 seconds included part of a photograph, the first photo transmitted from the Martian surface. However, there is nothing identifiable in the portion received. In 2013, a picture taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was announced to contain what is probably the Mars 3 landing site, found by amateur astronomers just looking at all the publicly available images. Yeah. The great thing about NASA, one of the many things I love about NASA, is that as a public body, all of its records are just open. Yeah. You you can look at them. Yeah. If this was a NASA-only episode, I would have... So much to go through. I mean, I do have so much to go through, but I kind of limited it to give the other space uh, uh, associate, yeah, space administrations a shot. Well, and that's there's been so many things that have come out over the years where like people have done stuff like that and yeah, then helped yeah. with research. And if yeah. you want to do science, you can just do it. Yes, it's it's there. It's out for you. Now, Mars two and Mars three. For all of their shortcomings and that that uh, tragically short lifespan of the Mars 3 lander, they would be the USSR's greatest successes on Mars. The 1973 window saw the orbiters Mars 4 and Mars 5 reach the planet, but fail to collect any important data before they had their own mechanical failures. Uh, Mars 6 and Mars 7 uh, were landers again that failed to land. Mars 6 crashed on descent, and Mars 7 missed the planet entirely due to a retro rocket failure. It just sort of flew on by. Yeah. NASA's successful study and mapping of the surface uh, from those Mariner probes, however, set up their first lander attempts, the Viking missions. Ooh. Vikings not known to be Italian, so I'm not sure what they're doing there. Uh, But Viking 1 and 2 launched in 1975's launch window. Again, a pair of identical craft. Yeah. You, you gotta have that redundancy. 
Please, please tell me there was like some stereotypical Viking symbol on it somewhere. Little hat. <laughs> the Vikings did not wear horn helmets. That was invented by Richard Wagner's uh, uh, costume designer. Not so I real. I said stereotypical. Okay. I didn't say real, like real historical. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but the Viking One orbiter entered Mars orbit on June nineteenth, seventeen seventy six. More anniversaries. Happy yes. Juneteenth, everybody. And and they started looking for a good parking spot. Yeah. The landing was scheduled for the 4th of July. Oh. Uh, the 4th of July, 1976, that is, the big one, the bicentennial. Yeah. Of course, their initial spot, once it got a closer look, a little too rocky, don't want to risk it. So it was delayed uh, for a landing on July 20th, the anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. How convenient. We got so many landings here. It, it turns out that so much stuff has happened in, you know, time. Yeah. That the, any the, given day is going to have something. Some anniversary. Yeah. So the Viking One lander touched down perfectly and gave us our first images, our first complete images, at least, from Mars's surface. And the first ones to contain anything of the Martian service. Sorry, Mars 3. You tried your best. <laughs> Color pictures started the next day. Again, bandwidth issue. Color yeah. pictures have a lot more data. The Viking 2 lander landed on September 3rd with one leg propped up on a rock. But it's okay. It's fine. That's fine. Yeah. We can get by. Not quite as perfect, but it's fine. Now, those two landers tested the soil that they landed on, expanding our knowledge of Mars's composition and geological history. It was the first time we got our hands on Mars dirt, even if they were robot hands. Still hands. Still counts. What if there were some scientist who was like, okay, I'm going to make sure the first human hand touches some Mars dirt. And they just like sent like a body part. And the rover just like dropped it. That would never get approval from NASA. (laughs) All of these landers uh, were like strictly and strenuously sterilized to make sure that nothing contaminated the Martian environment. Because mm. if you're looking to hopefully find like microbial life or, hey, let's get nuts, algae of some kind up yeah. there, you got to make sure you're getting clean readings. And you don't want to accidentally exterminate it with like. Yeah. Imagine the zebra a- <laughs> mussel, but for a whole planet. Yeah. Just destroying those fragile ecosystems before we can figure out what the heck they were. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, you, you cannot send your body parts to Mars. <laughs> and then all the headlines of, like, a picture of a hand, a severed hand just sitting there. Gruesome. <laughs> Viking One didn't just do Mars science. It did some, like, upper-level cosmology and, and theoretical physics. Okay. Transmissions from Viking One back to Earth were used to, to test for gravitational lensing and found it, proving a prediction of the, the theory of general relativity. So there. So there. Take that. Uh, they were both equipped to test for signs of life, and the tests were inconclusive. Oh. There were four tests. Two came back positive, two negative. Mm-hmm. As our knowledge of what microbial life can look like or could look like expands, these test results are continually being revisited and reevaluated. Mm-hmm. As well as seeing, like, if the testing instruments worked right. Yeah. You know, 
you have to test the test if you want to be sure to trust what the test said. Yes. Uh, the Viking 2 orbiter sent over 16,000 images over its lifespan of 700 orbits before being deactivated. Uh, the Viking 2 lander operated until its batteries failed in April 1980. Meanwhile, the Viking 1 orbiter performed twice as many orbits and transmitted over 57,000 images. It is likely still there in the Martian sky. The Viking 1 lander continued to operate for over six years until a ground control error broke contact. A software update meant to, like, improve the battery life uh, accidentally overwrote the antenna control, oh. which broke antenna contact and, and was never reestablished. Oh. The Viking 1 landing site uh, was renamed the Thomas A. Much Memorial Station in memory of the head of the imaging team, Thomas A. Much. Uh, he disappeared in 1980 while descending from the Himalayas. Dang! And is naturally presumed dead. We'll just say it was aliens. The dedication plaque is on display at the Smithsonian Institute. You can go and visit it, along with instructions to bring it to Viking 1 when circumstances permit. Aww. Because it is, after all, the, the plaque designating that site. It, yeah. If we ever get to that point in Mars in some, like, long-range rover capacity or, who knows, a Mars base... Yeah. There are instructions to put that plaque where it goes. Oh, that's cool. And so... You want one of those, don't you? I, <laughs> You're like, is that is that my, like, mission for when you die, is to, like, get you a plaque on Mars? No, no, just the internet, wherever that is. I think that's where I made my mark. <laughs> a, a plaque on the internet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna get you, like, an early 90s webpage that's, yeah. like, very flash- Get me a GeoCities uh, yes. and, and make sure the, like, a rotating hard hat never goes away. Because, like, life is continually under construction if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with that, we're going to take a break <laughs> <laughs> and be back soon. Welcome back, everybody. Hello! Now, where did we leave off? Uh, space. Space. Oh, right. The 1980s. <laughs> the 1980s were the slowest decade for Mars exploration ever since we started doing Mars exploration. Yeah. Uh, for one, the United States launched zero missions to Mars. There was suddenly a, a big change there. Yeah, yeah. And the USSR launched only a pair, an, another matched pair Phobos 1 and Phobos 2 in July 1988. Oh. Their science mission had three parts. Study interplanetary space on the way to Mars, study Mars and its moon Phobos from Martian orbit, then approach Phobos and study it from a distance of only 50 meters from the surface, then drop two landers on it. One that would stay stationary and one they called a hopper. Aww. It would just hop along. Whoop, whoop. I made that noise. <laughs> Good job, dear. Good noise. Yeah. <laughs> Phobos 1 was lost when its September 2nd check-in failed uh, in the midst of its flight. A series of mistakes had left the batteries drained in sort of a domino effect. Don't leave your lights on. 
This technician transmitted a computer instruction on August 28th that was missing a hyphen. Oh. The computer that was supposed to check outgoing transmissions was broken, but he sent it anyway because it needed to get sent. Now, the typo deactivated the attitude thrusters, so it lost its lock on the sun, so the solar panels couldn't recharge the battery. Now, the command that was accidentally sent was part of the test phase, which would normally be removed. But the way this computer was programmed, you'd have to take out the computer and replace it with a new one. And the launch window was approaching. Time is of the essence. You just just leave it in. Oh. All of these mistakes had to, to happen in a row for Phobos 1 to be lost the way it was. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Now, Phobos 2 also lost signal due to a much less interesting sort of run-of-the-mill computer malfunction uh, when it was time to do its intercept of the moon of Phobos. Mm-hmm. The 1990s saw a return to Mars, but with a, a new framework. So this story starts with the Mars Observer mission, launching in 1992. An orbiter repurposed from the, the design of a terrestrial satellite. It lost contact three days before it was supposed to maneuver into Mars orbit. The project cost $813 million, mm-hmm. four times its initial budget, and met none of its primary objectives. Oh, dang. Now, to compare, the Mariner project with its ten launches, seven of which were successful, probing three planets, cost a total of $554 million. Now, I mean, that's not inflation-adjusting. That's just the, the raw total, but still as a point of reference. Yeah. This led to two bureaucratic responses, the creation of the Mars Exploration Project and the Faster, Better, Cheaper program. Oh, boy. So the, the MEP has four defined goals. Determine if life ever arose on Mars, characterize the climate of Mars, characterize the geology of Mars, and prepare for the human exploration of Mars. Mm-hmm. Now, Faster, Better, Cheaper, or FBC, wasn't just, like, a catchphrase thrown around. It was a real named initiative. (laughs) You will find memos and reports about FBC. Again, NASA is a public uh, thing. You you just look them up. There's one in the show notes. Uh, Consultants went into study processes and tried to streamline the business of science. Mm Mm-hmm. The 1990s, compared to everything we talked about before, are a brand new world. We are post-Cold War. We are post-Reagan. We are post-Challenger disaster. Yeah. NASA has to assume that its failures will lead to funding cuts, and successes will not win new funds on the other side of the coin. Yeah. One of the bullet points was, quote, eliminate all non-value-added activities. Mm-hmm. We, we are no longer looking at science for science's sake. This is science you can justify to a congressional committee. Yeah. To try to get the appropriation you need so it doesn't blow up this time. Take all the fun out of it. Even looking at uh, the Mars Exploration Project's goals, one in four are huge headline grabbers. Can yeah. you imagine the day when we find uh, definitive... Uh, uh, evidence of life on Mars. I mean, we, we did. There there are microbial fossils, but just wait if we find living microbes. Yeah. Like, what the heck is going to happen? Or, yeah, when in the lead up to an eventual launch that hope happens in our lifetime, astronauts getting on a rocket and the next time they walk anywhere, it's on Mars. Yeah. 
Can you imagine? So the Mars Global Surveyor was already in the planning during these shifts, but launched in the 1996 window. Uh, It's an orbiter for polar orbit to image and study the surface systematically. The way the orbit was planned was to synchronize it with the sun so that all the pictures it took would be in the same lighting conditions. Oh. Uh, It was like in solar synchronicity. Uh, and, and the entire surface would be covered over seven Martian days. Yeah. It would keep going around and around as Mars keeps turning beneath it, and you, you'd get basically time lapse over the length of its its mission of the, the Martian surface changing seasonally uh, or finding tracks of new uh, dust devils or dust storms. Yeah. Its primary mission was to do that for 22 months but it remained active for over nine years of orbiting Mars. Oh, good job, little buddy. The mission was declared over after a faulty software update led to a battery loss. <laughs> Always those battery losses. This is why people hate to update their computers, okay? <laughs> like, no, if NASA can't do it right, this is not going to go well for me. But that battery loss resulted in a loss of contact in November 2006, its orbit remains stable and is expected to stay in its orbit uh, until 2047 is its estimated crash down date. That's a while. Now, its mapping was integral to finding landing sites for future rovers. Cool. It also took pictures of gullies, which showed uh, evidence of liquid water on the Martian surface flowing not only in ancient times, but uh, if you look at some of the pictures... Uh, in its later years, it even supports the idea that there's liquid surface flowing while it was orbiting, mm-hmm. like present-day surface water on Mars. But these long extensions, while they are incredible, they spark their own internal debate over NASA resources. It takes money to keep a mission going so long after its intended date. That's money that could go to new missions. You can't always be faster and better and cheaper all at the same time. Yeah. Which is the priority? What, how, do we, how do we allocate this? Mm-hmm. You can only slice the pie so many ways. Meanwhile, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, uh, built from what was left behind from the Soviet space agency. It's not Soviet anymore. No. Russia's not the USSR, folks. I hate to break it to you. I, I know some people want to pretend it is <laughs> for whatever Cold War II fantasies you might have. Mm-hmm. But it's different. Its problems are different, and its space agency is different. Yes. But they had their own launch in the 1996 window, Mars 96. Not the Mar- the 96th Mars mission, <laughs> just named for the year this time. It was an orbiter and two landers based on the Phobos probes from eight years earlier. It reached its parking orbit above Earth when the fourth stage of its rocket failed to burn. Hmm. Uh, if everything went according to plan that fourth stage would fall away, and then the the craft itself would start a burn. Yeah. The craft started its burn on time, as programmed, with the fourth stage still attached, though. So everything got all out of balance. Uh, It crashed back down to Earth. Its debris field is this 320-kilometer-long oval over South America. Oh, goodness. And the last mission I want to talk about in detail today is the Pathfinder mission. Yeah. Which launched in December 1996 in the same window 
Uh, but it's the first Mars mission conceived under the FBC mantra. How much faster, cheaper, and better? Well, only three years of development. A total cost throughout its lifetime of $280 million, Mm -hmm. which as far as Mars Mars mission goes is pocket change. Yeah. On the 4th of July, 1997, Pathfinder began a four-minute descent that used rockets, a parachute, and then it covered itself in a a full shell of airbags (laughs) and bounced across the Ares Vallis, uh, this big rocky area it was sent to find rocks and look at a lot of rocks Mm -hmm. so he looked at the images they had and said there's a bunch of different looking rocks that'll be fun in the aries Vallis, then those uh uh, airbags deflated it unfolded itself and waited for sunrise to charge up its batteries and begin its first transmissions happy fourth of july yeah on the next soul the next martian day the Sojourner rover set out on its journey, the first rover to actually rove another planet. Yeah. Sojourner was 11 and a half uh, kilograms, 65 centimeters. That's around two feet long. It is a little fella. Little baby. I mean, you've got the dog in your lap. Uh, its back was shorter than Moki at the shoulder, but it's longer and heavier. Okay. Yeah. Sojourner was named by a 12-year-old who, who wrote an essay that won a contest. So congratulations to her. Uh, it is named for Sojourner Truth. I thought so. The, the theme was like, name a, a hero who, you know, we can name our, our rover yeah. after. One of the, the uh, astronauts lost in uh, the Challenger disaster was in the top three. Marie Curie came in second. Or rather, the essay uh, arguing for Marie Curie came in second. Yeah. Yeah. Pathfinder and Sojourner, their mission was planned for seven souls, seven Martian days, with a possible extension to 30. They operated for 83 before the battery failed to hold a charge anymore. In that time, the rover went about 100 meters. Okay. Uh, Sojourner performed geology experiments, learning about the composition of Mars, uh, the history of floods and erosion in that region. Uh, scientists had a lot of fun naming every landmark in view. Like, the largest rock that got any hands-on study was named Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear. The first rock to, to be drilled into was Barnacle Bill. <laughs> There's a lot of cartoon characters uh, on Ares Vallis. Yeah. Yeah. Analysis showed incontrovertible evidence of ancient surface water, uh, raising the possibility of life on Mars. So this was a little baby rover that, I mean, had a battery that was meant for 30 days at the best. Lucky it went for 83. Yeah. But the basic design for its entry, for its its, uh, base plus rover model, uh, the, the way the wheels worked... All of that was proven effective and scaled up for future missions. Mm-hmm. Pathfinder and the little Sojourner buddy in particular were huge in popular consciousness uh, as the first successful rover. That's yeah. a big deal. Like, I remember waiting in line in the St. Clair, Michigan post office <laughs> yeah. to get the $3 commemorative postage stamp <laughs> yeah. that was issued in the fall. Yeah. For one, it saved Matt Damon's life in The Martian. Yeah. 
there there's that scene where he needs to figure out a way to talk with NASA. So the the nearest defunct lander is Pathfinder, and he goes and brings it back. Yes. That's in the book, but the movie adds him using Sojourner, charging her up as like a little pet Roomba to keep him company. Yeah, it's very cute. <laughs> in his habits hat. Bunch of little robot buddies running around. <laughs> now, the other faster, better, cheaper Mars, Mars missions were not as successful. No. The Mars Climate Orbiter infamously failed its orbital insertion because of a failure to convert between U.S. and metric units. Oh! That was a huge scandal in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, the Mars Polar Lander also failed uh, due to a premature engine firing of, again, a more mundane uh, uh, error. Yeah. But Pathfinder and the Mars Global Surveyor inspired new missions and uh, provide the data for them, many that are still going today. Uh, the Mars Odyssey orbiter is the, the oldest thing that is still in service over Mars. It launched in April 2001 and is performing its own mission while also uh, uh, broadcasting and, and rerouting signals from other craft. Yeah. Mars Express, the, the European Space Agency's first Mars mission, launched in 2003 and is also still operating in orbit. Uh, it contained a lander, the Beagle 2, which failed to deploy its solar panels on landing, oh. however. But the orbiter, still going strong, still doing science. Yeah. Uh, the Spirit and Opportunity uh, landers, another pair of rovers, they successfully touched down on January 20, on January 2004 on opposite sides of Mars. Their mission was planned for a, a 90-soul length. Uh, Opportunity was declared dead just this year, after 15 years of travel on the Martian surface. Oh, wow. It made it over 28 miles. That's quite a distance. It's the first thing to do a marathon on another planet. <laughs> Plus some. Victory lap. Again, you got, you got to remember that, that these missions are all planned and executed by giant dorks. Yeah. And I don't think anything... Uh, demonstrates that as well as the mission patches for Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit has Marvin the Martian. Yeah. And Opportunities has Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. What's Duck Dodgers? I don't know what that, that is. That's Daffy Duck in his Spaceman outfit. Oh! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotta have fun with it. <laughs> Did they not get, like, I don't know, sued for copyright or something there? Do you think Warner Brothers wants that heat? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope not, but <laughs> I would imagine they they reached out for like a, a solid or like a try to make a fair claim like, use. Do, do you not mind? We're good. Okay, <laughs> space. But there are currently eight operational craft on or orbiting Mars, both from NASA and the ESA and India's ISRO, a space agency. Hmm. Fewer missions launched in the 2010s than in the 60s or 70s, but the ones that did have a higher success rate and, again, for much longer-lasting missions, and also missions designed to network and work together out there. Yeah. Uh, the Curiosity rover, the, the latest rover uh, to land, has had its two-year mission extended indefinitely, and she's still going strong Man, today. I love Curiosity. Curiosity is the first rover to have a Twitter. Uh, 
on the first anniversary, Earth anniversary at least, of her landing, she played the first song ever played on Mars, Happy Birthday to You. <laughs> There's a lot of fun milestones from Curiosity. Yes. I feel um, like what the stuff they did with Curiosity was really smart in trying to get the public interest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The latest successful Mars mission, uh, in fact, the latest Mars mission uh, period, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, is the InSight lander, another NASA mission, but with uh, collaboration with the ESA for designing its its various instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is there to measure seismological data and generate a 3D model of the interior of Mars. Ooh. Last December, it recorded the first ever audio of the Martian wind. So now we know what weather on Mars sounds like. Yeah. Uh, just this April, it recorded its first Mars quake, which is incredible. Ah, it's funny to think that, yeah, they do have to change that name. Yeah. 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 There's also moonquakes. We've studied a lot of moonquakes. Yeah, but you don't you don't think like, oh, yes, that is actually very specific to us. <laughs> it's a big shift in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 2020 is going to be a big year. It's another good window. Yeah. The United Arab Emirates, Japan, and China are all planning on their first successful Mars missions. Japan and China have tried before, but they were not successful, unfortunately. NASA's Mars 2020 mission, that is the name, Mars 2020, uh, includes a new rover that is built uh, on basically the Curiosity chassis. Mm -hmm. Like, this works. This is great. Put different instruments on it. Yeah. Yeah. One of those instruments is a helicopter drone. (laughs) It's going to have a little bird buddy flying around Mars. (laughs) I love it. It's incredible. So that that takes us from the realm of history to current events, which is uh, a different show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, I would love, oh gosh, if you've been listening to this episode, you know I would love to talk about proposals and possibilities for for future exploration and manned exploration of mars but that's that's just not our our uh remit that's not our mission statement we just have to do the show for another 10 years (laughs) and then we can come back to it so dear what have you learned i have learned that there have been a lot of things blow up oh yeah The, the inherent difficulty and also a lot of rotten luck. Like, yeah. Mars missions have an awful success rate. Well, I skipped so many failures because after the successes start getting good, yeah. it's just not interesting to talk about, well, screwed up again. Uh- <laughs> it's so horrible, though, when it's like, when it's something that isn't just it getting blown up and it's like, wow, we left out a hyphen. Yeah. That yeah. sucks. That's a lot worse than it just blowing up on its own. Mm-hmm. When, when you think about what space exploration is, you are sending something in a giant explosion millions of miles away, and you get to talk to it sometimes when conditions are right. Yes. That's never going to change. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll find something better than rockets, but otherwise, it's <laughs> never going to change. Yeah. So everything has to be so precise and so right. And you you can only plan in advance for so many contingencies. Yes. 
I can't imagine like the stress of that. Like, mm-hmm. is this right? Mm-hmm. Did I leave out a hyphen? I know at my work there was a weird like slash going on in some coding, and it was messing up my entire email service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then there's somebody who can look at it and just like do it. Yeah, and nobody died. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I mean, like, so little like that, let alone like the the weight. That is on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's why they have to have, like, Daffy Duck and stuff on their <laughs> patches. They need a joke about something. Yeah. I, I also like to compare the the sudden and, like, violent deaths of the, the failed missions with the quiet and somber decommissionings yeah. of the successful ones. Just like, you know, every battery can only be recharged so many times. Yeah. Or, um... Our, our spirit and opportunity went down because their um, solar panels got too covered in Martian dust to recharge. Yeah. Just like a, a slow, quiet rest. They got to put a little device in there to like shake it. <laughs> like a puppy. Just a, a little rumble pack in yeah. there to shake yeah, things Yeah, so when there's dust, a little rumble. <laughs> It's really yeah. smart. Come on. Yeah, yeah. They probably they probably have something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we're gonna take one more break and be back with some letters. We've got letters, you wrote them We're gonna read them, we're gonna read the letters You wrote, it's time to read some letters Is that our new jingle? It is today okay. Our first letter comes in from Final Gamer Who was a big uh, uh, Alcatraz fan as a kid You know what I mean by that Don't be weird But uh, the prompt for this episode Was I wanted to hear some people's favorite robot Yeah and their favorite robot is E-102 Gamma from Sonic Adventure. Not only their favorite robot, but their favorite Sonic the Hedgehog character. Even more than Sonic? Even more than Sonic. What about Tails? Because Sonic and Tails aren't war machines that wake up to the reality of their existence and kill their siblings to release the bird inside and then themselves because they bear original robot sin. Wow, that's a lot to impact. Right on the Dreamcast. <laughs> Goodness. So thanks a lot, Final Gamer. Uh, George writes in with a show suggestion that thanks. we're not going to share, but thank you. Thank you, George. If, uh, if we do it, then we'll tell you it's from George. Yeah. That's the policy. Uh, George also shares their uh, pick for favorite robot, mm-hmm. um, which is an unorthodox pick. Um, and that is Samantha from the movie Her. I was so happy to read this email. I love that movie. Yes. Uh, and George, George points out that, uh, Samantha is an operating system. So like. Yeah. She doesn't have mechanical parts. No. She's a software only robot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and George points out that, uh, Samantha functions, uh, like most pop culture robots and, you know, has like a personality. It is more than just technology. And, mm-hmm. um, 
and that that's that's why they picked him. <laughs> I love her. If you haven't seen her, I recommend you go see it. I, I love it because it works so well as just the sad kind of romantic comedy where like two people come together and it turns out they're perfect for each other and then they grow into different people as people tend to do over their lives and then they don't work and it's sad. And it's that movie. It's a really good one of those movies. But it's also really good speculative fiction about uh, the machine learning and the place of technology in people's lives at the same time. It, it works on both levels so well. I also watched this movie with you. Yes. And I don't really have much of an opinion on it. Okay. I, I also <laughs> really want to play the video game that Amy Adams' character is designing about being a suburban mom and getting your kids to on time faster <laughs> than all the other moms. Yeah. That looks like a really fun game. It's like restaurant mania, but mom <laughs> mania. It's, uh, thanks, George. Peter's favorite robot is more of a, a classification of robots than any one individual, because individually, they're useless. It's nanomachines. Ah. Uh, little devices on the tiniest scales that we can use to influence things on the tiniest scales. Uh, this is another thing that sci-fi writers love to, to pontificate about, because in a sense, when, when you're down to like the foundation of what makes things what they are, the sky's the limit. Also, this letter is full of Metal Gear Solid references. And if you've been waiting for uh, the Metal Gear Solid 5 Let's Play that I'm a part of to return, our backlog is, is big and processed enough that we'll be coming back with twice-weekly updates starting Ooh. again this week Ooh. on the 25th. So the same day you're listening to this, later in the afternoon, you'll have a new Metal Gear Solid 5 video. Ooh. Check it out. Will writes in, uh, first to wish us a happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. Uh, and also answers uh, the prompt with their favorite robot being Flippy from Miso Robotics. Is this a, a, a video game? A show? No, I, I think Flippy's a real robot. Oh, uh, it sounds like something that could be from a video game or a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Will shares that Flippy's whole purpose is to flip burger patties, uh, but they can also work a fryer. Mm -hmm. Their first job was at Cali Burger. They had to be shut down after a few hours because they were too good at their job and the humans couldn't keep up. Yeah, Flip, Flippy is real. Miso Robotics is a real robotics company. And part of the reason it sounds fake is because that's just the story of John Henry. But for... <laughs> But for the present day. Well, I think it's also the name Flippy. Yeah, It makes a me think bit. of some cute little, like, cartoon robot. <laughs> and Will also uh, shares some insight as to our conversation from our last episode on Alcatraz as to why, um, as to, to why in some of the photos from Alcatraz, the walls were, like, pink and mint green. Mm -hmm. um, and well after uh, the prison was closed in the early 2000s, there were several studies uh, into the use of pink walls to calm violent prisoners. But the studies conflict over whether it was successful in lowering aggression or making it worse. <laughs> um, and Will suggests that maybe they were an early adapter of using this. Trying to get in on aromatherapy for the eyes. So maybe there was a point, or maybe it was just the cheapest paint available. <laughs> I don't know. But thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. 
Claritic writes in to continue bucking the trend and talk about real robots, specifically Cassius from Robot Wars. Robot Wars is a, a robot fighting tournament as televised in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yep. A, a sister show to BattleBots. It did get some air in the U.S. as well. We yeah. Had, we had both shows over here. I think it was sci-fi? Uh, Comedy Central had BattleBots. Sci-fi had Robot Wars. Ah. I'm not sure if they were the same fights in the U.S. Robot Wars, but I do know we had Mick Foley, World Wrestling Entertainment Superstar, as the host. Ah. But anyway, back to what Claritic wants to talk about. Cassius was your simple wedge-shaped flipper arm robot all about uh, controlling the space, mm-hmm. basically, and putting its opponents on their back yeah. where the weapons don't do good. And Cassius was incredibly successful, which changed the entire sport. Everybody had to either figure out a self-writing system or be a flipper robot that could outflip Cassius or something. Every design. Flippy could do it. Every <laughs> It's right in the name. <laughs> right in the name. But the whole, like, meta became entirely Cassius-focused. But part of the draw that made it fun was just seeing the weird variety out there. Mm-hmm. So while uh, uh, the show has since returned... Uh, into the zeitgeist with new episodes. Even so, everybody knows through like experimental testing that the best thing you can be is a wedge with very low clearance and a flipper. The low clearance so you don't get flipped, and hopefully your flipper is designed in a way that it's also a self-writing mechanism. It's, it's just a bunch of mirror matches. Yeah. Yeah. However, this is all prelude to talk about Claritic's favorite robot, Panic Attack. This little rectangular box with its own lifting forks and a kid's spider drawing as decoration that was competing for charity. But Panic Attack had much, much better drivers than Cassius. Mm-hmm. And Panic Attack won based on, on fighting spirit, <laughs> overcoming technological superiority. And if that's not a robot fighting show, I don't know what is. I don't know. Thanks, Claritic. Dappy writes in, uh, who is a longtime listener, but first-time caller. Hi, Staffy. <laughs> Thanks for writing in. Their favorite robot is uh, their team's uh, 2019 robot with the Corona Robotics team. Hey, Corona. Hey, hey, I'm we, from, well, not there. I'm, we're from by there. We're also from mid-Michigan. We know where Corona is. I've spent my fair share of time in Owasso. <laughs> And this this robot is the robot that took them to the first championship at Kobo in Detroit. Oh, uh, nice. And every year, uh, their team, Fridgebot, uh, builds a new robot for the first robotics competition. And sounds like this is with children, uh, <laughs> schools, s- students of some sort, um, where they get to learn these skills and build their robot uh, to go to the competition, which is awesome. Congratulations and shout out to Fridgebot and the Corona Robotics Center. I love this letter so much. Yeah. Thanks, Stappy. 
Lord Smaff writes in to predict what I'm going to do and then make fun of me about it. Yeah. This wasn't an episode on on the, the Gundam series or Tamino or a fictional history of the Universal Century. Mars is barely even important in the Universal Century, thank you very much. Maybe Iron-Blooded Orphans is a different story, but no, it's not about Gundams. But even so, Lord Smash's favorite uh, of those, as if piloted mecha count, which they contend are not robots, uh, there's, their favorite would be the RX-79G ground-type Gundam from 8th MS team. It's a good one. This is why you got this letter. I was yeah. like, I don't know what we're talking about. But some more shout-outs to uh, the original uh, RX-78-2, the Big O from Big O. Now, that's a heck of a show from my, my early teen age years, my, my pre-teen years, I think. But as far as robots that are actual robots, Lord Smash's favorite is R2-D2. And anytime there, there's a new Star Wars, they are scanning the horizon for new fun droid concepts. Yeah. Thanks, Lord Smash. One fine cat wrote in to answer a couple prompts. Uh, favorite mistake uh, is the accidental discovery of penicillin by Alexander Fleming, um, which is where a Petri dish was accidentally exposed to mold spores that enabled uh, bacterial growth. Nope. Nope. Inhibited. The opposite. That inhibited bacterial growth. Uh, an honorable mention also goes to the discovery of Viagra, which was initially tested as a treatment for chest pain. Which is very interesting, because they're like, don't take this if you have heart conditions. Goes to show how the test went. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Favorite snack food? Because they were never really a fan of ice cream, uh, their comfort food was always raspberry sorbet covered in gummy bears and Sour Patch Kids. That sounds incredible, though. Incredible and so acidic. (laughs) Maybe just the gummy bears? Yeah, I'm a little concerned about the Sour Patch Kids with the raspberry sorbet. Okay. I'd still eat it, though. Also, one fine cat uh, informs us that in (laughs) Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, there is an ice cream parlor uh, that advertises lobster ice cream that has a note that says, yes, contains real lobster. Uh, They have never tried it, but I'm curious. I'd I'd maybe get it. Maybe you just cover it in some Sour Patch Kids, so it has that... (laughs) That tang of familiarity. Just cover it in butter. <laughs> Some ice cream with like melted butter that like hardens. It's, like, it's like the hardening chocolate. Yeah, yeah. But butter. Yum. Mm-hmm. They also share uh, some information about the origin of uh, the name Hagen das which is a bunch of nonsense syllables that don't actually mean anything. And we're supposed <laughs> to sound like generic Danish. Um, because the Polish-American creators thought that Americans held a positive opinion of Denmark and its dairy products. Some of those sounds don't even exist uh, in Danish. Shows what they know. Um, and for favorite robot, uh, they go with Robocop. Uh, specifically the original played by Peter Weller. Well, yeah, because Robocop 3 is bad and dumb. Uh, and they also bring up... Uh, your favorite new toy obsession. <laughs> hobby. Your favorite new hobby. I also like the cartoons. And the cartoon. <laughs> and we're wondering if that was the pro or like the episode or if it was just a coincidence. I didn't know what this episode was going to be, but I had like three ideas and coincidentally they all included robots. 
that was one of them. <laughs> so you got me. <laughs> Thanks, one fine cat. Thank you. Isaac is another first-time writer. So glad to hear from you, Isaac. And their favorite mistake is the recruitment of Jeffrey Tandy uh, to uh, work at Bletchley Park in World War II, trying to break the Nazi codes alongside uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> in order to break codes, you, you would want to you would want to hire a bunch of uh, code breakers, or as they're known, cryptogramists. Mm-hmm. They do cryptograms. Now, Jeffrey here was a cryptogamist, who was a scientist specializing in the study of spore-producing plants, like ferns and whatnot. There's your mistake. (laughs) Now, he still did great work, though, and and, uh, was a key member of the team. Uh, There were a bunch of recovered Enigma documents that, that had a lot of water damage and had to be treated very carefully, he saved them because of his previous work with damp algae specimens. Ah. There you go. Uh, and Isaac's favorite robot uh, in this letter is Alexander from Final Fantasy XIV, uh, specifically the one in Final Fantasy XIV, the, the MMO that, that everybody loves to play dress up in, uh, because he is a boss with time powers who is also a haunted fortress. And, you know, it's hard for folks like that to find a date. Um, the, the pool is pretty shallow. Yeah. Not a lot of time-controlling haunted fortress robots mm. out there on Tinder. No. Uh, so thanks, Isaac, and thank you for all the kind words. Uh, thank you to everyone who wrote in. And if you would like to uh, send us a letter like these folks, you can do that by sending it to... History Honey's podcast at gmail.com. And that's where we want to hear your show suggestions like George, thank you. And uh, any stories you've got, questions that we'd be happy to answer. Uh, corrections. D- did I say Mars wrong this time? I hope not. Uh, and <laughs> and also the, the responses to our usual prompts. Darling, what would you like to hear about for our next episode? I would like to know what your favorite train is. <laughs> Your favorite train. Call in those rail fans. Rail fans assemble. I know your favorite train. Yeah. It, it's the one that hit George Clooney in, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> Not since he was hit by that train. Obviously. Nothing left but a grease spot on the LM. And again, those can go to History Honey's podcast at gmail.com. Cub Bluey. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. At History Honeys. Uh, And while you're out there uh, talking to us, you can also talk about us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you found us. We really do appreciate those. You can also tell a friend. Uh, Word of mouth goes a long way. And uh, many of you are here because a friend told you. I bet that's true for Isaac. You think so? I bet it's true for Stappy, too. You think so? I think so. Well, you know what? You could write in and correct us if we're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, we we do appreciate it very, very much. And I guess that's all from us this week. Yeah. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with your honey.